I just love what you do for me. You're so reliable, smart and incredibly well-connected. <clears throat> Excuse me, could I pay for my meal? Oh, of course, just having a moment with my Combank Smart Terminal. Tap away. Feel a stronger connection. With extra connectivity, you're always payment ready. There's more to love with the Combank Smart Terminal. Mm, it is a nice terminal. Eligibility criteria, fees and T's and C's apply. Hey, welcome to the Medicubes podcast, where we bring you all that's good, exciting and sometimes challenging in primary health care. I'm Chris Spee, joined by my good friends Kim Pointer and Rivka Hagen. Together we bring a wealth of experience and passion, as well as being in the thick of what's going on in our industry. We used to have a laugh, debrief and chat about all the big issues and what was happening in our own professional worlds and invite you to join us in this conversation. So join us and our invited guests every month to bring you a lighthearted take on the latest, greatest and controversial issues and a few pearls of wisdom along the way. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. A hearty welcome from Birupai country. And uh, Rivka Hagen here. I'm meeting you from Jajawurun country. And a big hello from Turbul and Jagara country. Welcome everyone. It's a great day for us today because we have the wonderful Karen Booth with us and I'd love to introduce her to you. Karen's worked as an RN and a manager in general practice since 1998. Her areas of expertise include prevention, chronic disease, care coordination, data management, accreditation, setup of systems in general practice, including nurse-led clinics supporting a team-based approach to care. Karen is skilled in health policy, which is why we are so fortunate to have her with us today, workforce development and advocating for the role of nurses in primary health care and what a woman. Karen has over a decade's experience advising on national health reform and health workforce, including the MBS review, the national 10-year primary health care plan and the NP 10-year plan. Karen is a current member of the Strengthening Medicare Task Force and the New South Wales Rural Health Minister's Advisory Panel. So a big, big welcome to you, Karen. But before we kick off, we always like to hear a fun fact from our guests. So could you allude or share what's your fun fact for us today? I have a few fun facts, but my favourite one is the fact that I've had a drink with both David Hasselhoff oh. and Arnold Schwarzenegger Wow! on separate oh. occasions. Celebrity. A long time ago. Man. Tell us more about that. It's pretty cool. How did you make that happen, Karen <laughs> Oh, you know, the days of disco out and about and stumbled on a board, David Hasselhoff, who said, can I buy you a drink? I went, yes, please. And I wondered, what, I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I was judging there or being the compare at a round of Miss World that was being held here. And he said, they're all so boring, I needed to get out. And he found me. Uh, Karen, were you dressed like Pammy? Like, is that why he went, can I buy you a drink? (laughs) (laughs) No, it it was even before that. It was just after he finished the Knight Rider series. Wow. So it's a long time ago. (laughs) I'd take that one, though, if he's offering to buy you a drink. Good on you, girlfriend. All right. Thank you. I would like to now... um, obviously introduce our team as well. We have Chris Mead here with us today and Rick Hagen. And Chris, I'm going to throw it over to you to 
get us started with Karen and, and ask her all your questions and wisdom. I know, the first question, no pressure. After following that fun fact, I'll never live up to David Hasselhoff, buy you a drink. But can I ask you, can I not buy you a drink, but can I ask you a question? I know when I started in general practice many years ago, looking at my uh, bald head in the reflective lights here, one of the first things I heard about was apnea. But I know we have a lot of new practice managers and new people to primary care who, who listen to this podcast. And I think with your role, tell us about apnea and what it does and why it's so important. Okay, so apnea is the peak body for nurses working in primary health care. And believe it or not, there's more than 90,000 nurses working in primary health care. Out of that, roughly 45,000 in aged care and general practice, which is my field. When I first joined general practice, there was less than 2,000 of us nationally, and now there are 15,000. Wow. So we've grown a lot in a decade. Uh, we have members who are prison health nurses, community nurses, sexual health nurses, and School Nurses Australia recently amalgamated with APNA. And so we've got lots of bases covered for getting expert advice from nurses around the country. And the role of the organisation is to advocate for those nurses and to make sure that we are part of health policy, but also to help steer health policy to make sure that it's contemporary and fit for purpose and incorporates all team members. And that peak role of being the peak body is, is fantastic and bring the role into the conversation more, which is amazing. If you had to sort of describe what is a primary healthcare nurse, I know you mentioned the different disciplines, but what else can you tell us about, about this wonderful part of our, our health system? Well, I think they're the nurses who are outside of the tertiary care system. So we actually are probably the most broadly spread group of health professionals. And there are, you know, lots of places in the country where there are no doctors and no other health professionals, but there'll be a nurse who will be making sure that people get access to some type of health care and who are able to coordinate and make sure people in certainly in very distant areas are able to get care they need and medevaced out when they're needed. So nurse plays a very key role there. And the other really important thing we do is prevention and chronic disease management mm. as well. Early childhood management with our early childhood nurse members. So really broad, broad skill set. It is so broad. It is so broad. So I'm going to jump in too. I have so many questions for you, but I know that we're going to be a little bit limited with, um, with how far we can go. Look, we know that as nurses, student nurses come out of their learning environment, that the hospital sector is very much top of mind for them in terms of, you know, career path and progression there. And general practice tends to fly a little bit under the radar. And I'm certainly aware that APNA is kind of looking at that a little bit differently now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what APNA is doing with the nursing student sector? Um, you're completely right there, Rivka. It does fly under the radar in a lot of the universities. And something like less than 25% of the universities actually have some sort of meaningful primary healthcare content. And even the TAFE courses for the enrolled nurses, 
they have a mandated section for primary health care, but it's still actually quite light and it depends on where you're being taught and the enthusiasm of the lecturers there or if they have experience in primary health care. And I think that that's part of the reason why it's been kind of under the radar. And what AFNA has been trying to do, we're working with a number of universities now to try and push up the content of the primary health care case studies. And people don't realise, or certainly it's not top of mind, most patient journeys begin in primary health care. Yes, they might end up in hospital, but then they end up back in primary health care. So, you know, it's the identifying the problem and the risk happens where we work. And then those that need extra care are handed over and then come back to us. So student placements, making sure that those kids have a really good taste of what's happening. During the lockdown, when all these nurses were there was a threat that they couldn't graduate because they didn't have enough clinical hours. We placed over 400 nurses during lockdown in Melbourne, which had the severest lockdown, so that these kids could get their hours up and graduate. And there's still a backlog of incomplete clinical placements affecting potential new nurse registrants. Yeah, I really wanted to touch point on that as well. Like, you know, yes, there is certainly a lack of knowledge and insights to the breadth of the role and I certainly was one of those nurses that came out of intensive care nursing everyone would just assume that I would know what to do in primary care and I had no idea what people did in primary health care I knew that that's where I took my babies and they had their immunizations but apart from that you know I didn't realize the scope that's within primary health care and I think that's where we really need a lot of talent and young talent to understand how do we attract that talent into primary health care and retain that workforce so people don't see it as this is where I go after I've burned out after hospital. They actually go, this is an amazing career and a beautiful place to spend time because as you highlighted, Karen, patients are constantly flowing in hospital and then back out into primary health care. And I thought, you know, after I did my cardiothoracic surgery on patients, you know, and nursed them back through rehab, that they were sold. They were going out there and living their best lives. But little did I know that we were seeing them six weeks later and, you know, back in chronic disease management land. You know, it's a long journey. It's a long game. Look, I think one of the, one of the things too that isn't well recognised is that for primary health care, there's no formal student placement program. So the universities find it really difficult to deal with multiple small businesses to place students. And that's where APNA has stepped in. And we're brokering placements for universities with multiple general practices and aged care facilities are also coming on board wanting to take students. We have practices coming to us saying, we'll take students, we'd love to take students. They felt that they had previously missed the opportunity to do that and they're very aware that we need to grow our own so we really need to make sure that nurses get a really good experience in primary health care so we're pushing for a formal student platform yeah and I'm just thinking about more that older nurse like you know not necessarily straight out of uni but they may have been in another workplace i.e tertiary care 
how do you transition them out so that they don't feel like all of a sudden they've gone from a massive team around them to feeling quite isolated? That That is a really key issue. And when you move from a team where you've got lots of people you can rely on, you can ask lots of questions, you can see what they do. And I'm certainly a monkey see, monkey do learner. We really need a strong transition to practice program. Where APNA has developed transition to practice program, really well regarded one for general practice. That's been going for a number of years. The government keeps funding us for pilots for that. But what we really need, we really need a rollout program. We've had eight years of pilots that have proven more than 90% retention rate. Now's the time to make the big jump. Some of the PHNs are coming to us. They're funding nurses to do our program, uh, knowing that it will help them stay. And we're also working on the same thing for aged care. Karen, I've got a question. As a practice manager, if I have a nurse joining my practice for the first time, and it's their first time entering primary care, how can I support them? What are some real tangible things that I can do? Because I think that's what would really help our listeners. Is like, what are the top three things that you would love every practice manager to do? When, when a new nurse joins their team and it's their first time in primary care? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is you sign them up to APNA. And, done, um, done, and then, double done. And then you, you get the handbook for nurses in general practice, new to general practice. You can, if you're keen, buy a space in our non-pilot transition <laughs> to practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, advantages for being an APNA member are that we do have a support line. So if nurses get stuck, there is a support line. And we've got lots of online resources for new nurses. And to find a buddy, and if you don't have someone in your practice, maybe a local general practice will have a, a nursing peer. Some of the PHNs also, their education is a great opportunity to network and meet other nurses as well. So they're, I think, probably top of the list. Of course, the Adna Conference in Perth in July will be an absolute winner for all nurses. We'll make sure we include a link in the show notes to that one. (laughs) Okay, done. (laughs) I've got a question for you too, Karen. Just extending out from that notion of how do uh, practices make nurses feel welcome and, and well included in their team, and that is around what practices might expect especially with nursing students, when they come into their practice as a, an add-on, what sort of support is available, not just from the process point of view, but also from a funding point of view? Are there any funding programs available to support practices to take on nursing placements within their practice? But there's some very interesting things happening around our student placement program, and one of them is there is a small amount of funding and I think off the top of my head, it's something like $50 a day, which is very close to, I think, what practices get for medical students, something like that. Our program, we give some support training to the nurse who's in the practice who will be supervising the students. And we survey the student and the practice before and after. And we've got amazing results from the difference in the learning experience for the students, but also the sense of pride that the practices have taking students. And this also goes to taking young nurses as well, registered nurses, and that keeps everyone on their toes because they have to be quick thinking. They're being challenged by these young, smart minds. 
And we've also found that for the nurses who are doing the supervising, they've said they're going to stay in the workforce for at least another five years. So they've enjoyed the role so much. It's added to their personal and professional fulfilment that they may have been thinking, oh, I'm getting close to retirement, but they're happy to stay much longer now. And I think that's, you know, seeing that they're helping, contributing to build the workforce of the future. And Karen, there's an old, you know, the adage of how do we make sure we're optimising our nurses, right? So we've talked about how do we really make sure we retain our nurses and give them the best support. But how do we make sure that we're optimising them in terms of their scope of practice? This has been a conversation point for a number of years now, for sure. That's right. And as you're probably aware, Kim and Rivka, we've had the APNA Nurse Workforce Survey now. It's been going for a decade. And one of the consistent themes was that roughly a third of all primary healthcare nurses still keep saying they're not utilised to their full potential. So they might like to do things like preventative health clinics, or they might like to do health coaching, or they might like to do all of these other things that are higher level population health supports. And they often get stuck in doing kind of lower level tasks. They want a challenge and they need something that can make it meaningful. Nurses don't need to do the recalls. Maybe they need to monitor them, but that's a clerical activity. And a lot of nurses are stuck there for hours on end chasing patient recalls Whereas really, even from an economic sense, do I have my higher paid staff member do the clerical work or do I do it, give it to the clerical person? So I think there are lots of ways where we can hand over work. And if everybody lifts their game, so we have our nurses much better utilised, they're running chronic disease clinics, they're running vaccination clinics and doing health coaching, teaching self-care, that lets the GP then go straight on to doing those higher level activities, the diagnostic activity, better referrals, um, medication adjustment, and all of that done in the team is really important. But if one level lifts up, it lifts up the game for the next level as well, improves access to care. And we really need to think about meaningful work. And when you're not doing meaningful work, it actually leads to burnout. And we all need to make sure that we're all surviving and we're supporting each other really well. And I think there's a lot of practices that are quietly doing that. We're not funded to do that. So we need to do all of that and have a much better funding model that will support us to do that. Karen, I guess that is absolutely such a fabulous leading to to the next area that we really want to tap into your expertise about And that is around the advocacy that APNA undertakes and very specifically what has been the focus on task force reviews and the changes that we know are going to be coming to the primary care sector very shortly. Our our point of view and our main push has always been better recognition of the skill set of nurses and certainly a better funding model so that practices can use the entire team much more flexibly. Currently, we have a situation where if someone has a chronic health condition, 
the nurse might have done all the coaching, but they can't charge them anything, mostly unless the doctor says, hello, how are you? Cha-ching. So we need to actually change the pay point from being the doctor activity to being the patient activity. And so if the patient is the person that is the funding point, then whoever gives the care, we're able to fund that activity. If we fund it long-term and make it predictable, so say you've got 100 diabetics in your practice and you think, oh, well, I should run a diabetic clinic. I don't know how often they're coming in. If you are funded in a bulk payment where practices could say, okay, I know this 100, I'm going to plan for this clinic, I can plan for staffing because I know how much funding we're going to get, we can line the doctor up to be there on the same day. Make it predictable for practices. Currently, it's not predictable. High-performing practices, of course, will have a system where they're recalling people and bringing them back. But there's no incentive for others to do that, particularly those caught up in, you know, the quick turnover medicine, short-term things, not long-term. So we need to change the funding for that. The COVID vaccine, I think, is a bit of an example of how that we could have used funding better. If practices had been funded as a population payment in the beginning, rather than individual items, we wouldn't have had the problems with needing doctor supervision for every activity. Practices could have said, okay, here's my money, here's my first 100 patients, accredited nurse immuniser, go for it. Aged care facility, I've got to take the doctor out of action for a whole afternoon to go there. No, keep the doctor working. Accredited nurse immunised, I could have gone in and done that because we would have been funded in a population health model. The current fee-for-service model for that, while it's still going on, it could have been done so much better. And I think we have to think about that. How do we do this better? How do we use our resources? nurses in a much smarter way and how do we make it more efficient for practices who can then see many more people so I think we really need a kick in the pants and to actually think smarter. Karen do you have a sense of where the detail is going to land in hopefully well hopefully soon in the next couple of weeks couple of months do you have a sense of where that's actually going to land? My, my sense from being on the Medicare task force was certainly that everyone in that room was in agreement. The current fee-for-service model isn't working. The actual sort of breakdown dollars and cents, there will be a lot of discussion about that, a lot of health economists with a pencil and a rubber working that out. But I think there's no doubt we have to change the way we fund things. But we will see change, I think. And, and it will also depend... Budget-wise, it's difficult. And then we've got is going to be a hard budget for Jim Chalmers. So we'll see what comes out. The main thing is we can't do nothing. We have to do something. General practice needs funding, but we also need to work smarter. So hopefully we'll see something promising in the next few weeks. The work of that body, I don't think, is certainly not done with that initial paper. And I'm sorry to sort of maybe take a step backwards, but it has been a burning question that a lot of our community has been talking about was nearly 600 GPs getting compliance letters around the 10997s. And I, I know we're talking a lot about funding and future and stuff, but we have to sometimes operate in the world that we have right now. 
what, what's your take on those letters going out and what are you hearing from, from your members? I think shock and disbelief. <laughs> and I know yep. that, you know, initially we were encouraging practices and certainly I've been to lots of education sessions talking about the use of nurse item numbers that it could be done with care planning. Yeah. Now, somewhere quietly, that interpretation has changed, hence the letters. But if you look at the Medicare statistics, there's something like if you, there's one nurse item number roughly for every care plan. So it's underdone right. to the max. And so to think that in some way the system was being exploited for a $12 <laughs> nurse item number is absolutely mind-boggling. One of the problems when they change interpretations is that they don't publicise it and people don't know. And that's happened before. And years ago, and I think I put in my notes, years ago, interpretation of nurse time in health assessments was interpreted by a high-level public servant as not counting. And so it meant that the doctors, that the thought was that doctors would have to do the health assessments or they could only charge for the five or ten minutes that they spent with the patient despite the fact the nurse would have worked out 45 minutes worth of complex care and discussion and so we advocated to the secretary of the department at that time said all population health activity will stop practices will stop doing it they won't do health checks because it's just not worth it they'll move the nurses into other things it was changed that afternoon. Oh, yes, that interpretation was probably a misinterpretation. And so back to business as usual. Yeah, and it's incredible, isn't it? Like, as you say, the interpretation changed with, without any announcement. They updated their e-learning, right, with the new interpretation of um, 10997. They don't advocate for it to be, you know, regularly co-claimed with the 721 and the 723. That wasn't there just until recently, right? But there was no, as you say, media release. And I am going into general practice like no doubt we all are. And I have been into a few general practice where they had one GP had 49 pages of please prove that your nurse has actually done the activities under the descriptor of 10997. Now that's 49 pages of this person, their practice manager was going through all the notes to justify, as you say, Karen, $12.50. And we are saying we want to increase the scope of practice of our nurses, do those self-managed health coaching components of it, do full biometric screening, do a dedicated nurse-led clinic, etc. And the upshoot of all of that was when I was having a conversation with multiple practices about these letters, is now they're going, well, we're not going to claim the 10997 because look at the admin that's come out of that. So it's a backward step for really improving and strengthening our team-based care, making sure that we've got really good care being delivered by nurses through that screening and assessment activities and setting self-managed agreed goals. You're pulling that nurse out of that activity for that $12.50 saving but where's the care going? It's just going to be rubbish if that's going to be the way practices are going to interpret that now as the new way that we can utilise the 10997. It's just crazy business. 
Look, I have an on, ongoing or running joke with the health minister around the value of those nurse items and that for $12 I can do an activity that will take me five minutes or I can do an activity that takes an hour and it's still only $12. What is the value of that? And of that $12, maybe between 60 and 80% of the value of that will go home with the GP whose name it was billed under. So the value to the practice is probably only about 3 or $4. They should get rid of that ITIN number and roll that into long-term care and incorporate that. Not get rid of the actual funding pool, not at all, but incorporate that into long-term big-picture funding so that practices, it's a manual thing. They forget to do it. There's a lot of slippage in billing when it comes to that item number. I have a colleague who's a practice manager, mutual practice, and he counted all of the records of the nurse in notes doing mm. chronic disease and put in a back claim and got $30,000 worth of back claim where those items had not been claimed and Medicare paid it. So, you know, there's a huge amount of slippage. It's not a big item number, but, you know, every little bit at this point in time helps. And this is, it's almost robo-debt for Medicare, this type of item number. I think you're right, Karen, that, uh, you know, there is a lot of angst about this and the value of the item is just so paltry that we're sort of wasting each other's time in, in having to do this compliance checkup. I think some of the distaste in all of this also stems from the fact that Medicare has traditionally paid the 10997 together with the 721 and 723. And some of the argument is that if that was not ever the intention, why wasn't it bounced back to give that indicator to practices that these two items should not be charged together? So that, that's one thing. But I think on the flip side too is well, what is the actual intention behind the 10997? So from my perspective, I've always advocated for not charging a care plan creation, team care arrangement, together with the nursing item, because to me it seemed reasonably clear that the intent of the item was to actually support the patient with the care plan in place to achieve some of the goals that have been outlined within that care plan. And setting those goals is what items 721 and 723 are actually being paid for. So that notion that, you know, you're kind of claiming something on top of that hasn't really sat all that easy with me, but I, for the life of me, can't understand why Medicare didn't simply make that clear by disallowing the co-claiming in the first place. So uh, I really do feel for the practices that uh, that are kind of caught up in this. And we've had those items for, what, more than a decade? Correct. So it's interesting that the last few months that this is an issue. Yes, I think get rid of the item number, roll it into something bigger and make it more flexible for the workforce to do patient care. That's the way to go, isn't it? So I think just, you know, as final thoughts and comments from you, Karen, what's the future of primary healthcare nursing from your wishes and, and if you had a magic wand, what would you hope and dream that would come to fruition in the, in the coming months? I would like to see universities 
certainly push up their primary healthcare content much better. And I'd like to see universities do case studies of the entire patient experience. So coming to general practice, the diagnosis, referral pathways, tertiary care, and what happens after. I don't think we do enough big picture care, sort of case studies on patients. So we need to have that whole of patient process thinking and training, not just for nurses, but for all health professionals. I'd like to see different types of health professionals rotating through, particularly general practice, so that you get nurses and allied health have a taste of general practice. And of course, we need more medical students through there so they know what it's like to the future of nursing, I could, I, I'm hoping to see recognition that we need better job satisfaction. So I'd like to see the role elevated, the skill set recognised better. And we know that there are places out in particularly in our rural areas where there are whole small hospitals without doctors and run by nurses. There are country towns where the only health professional is a nurse. So we want to see better recognition of that role and career pathways for young nurses coming through. I think clinical pathways, nurse practitioner, better recognition of the skill set for them is important. And we need to really look at how do we make primary health care, how do we make aged care look at that little bit sexy, bit attractive for young nurses coming in. And I think student placements, transition to professional practice programs, they should be mandated. So it should just be the next step in the career to make sure that nurse is supported. When they're feeling supported, they're then ready to take through the next round to feel supported. So we really need to think at what is going to make this a better experience and how do we keep them? And they're the things I certainly rattle the sabres about most of the time. And I'm sure remuneration fits in there somewhere as well for the nurses, which has just been so contentious as well, hasn't it? Yeah, look, I do. I mention that all the time. If you work in general practice, your pay and certainly aged care, your pay is roughly 20, sometimes 25% less than what people are getting in the tertiary sector. We saw in COVID that that large number of nurses sucked out of general practice and aged care to higher paying immunisation jobs or higher paying rotate to the country. I get a lot of recruiters offering me jobs at, you know, $95 an hour to work in some more sort of outlying areas. And you think that's a lot of money. It's very attractive. You do it for a few months, but, you know, you have to leave where you are, leave general practice at $35 an hour and go and work somewhere for $95 an hour. It's a very attractive option, particularly if you've got a mortgage, you've got family to feed. You know, we need to think pay is a huge issue and we need to make it competitive. And I did tell them that many times at the, at the Medicare task force. Amazing. You know, I'm a loud and proud member of the Australian Primary Nurse Association and I'm really looking forward to the Festival of Nursing over in Western Australia in July. Uh, I just always find the APNA conferences are just an absolute ball of fun. Karen Booth's always on the dance floor and kicking up her heels, you know, party girl always soaring through, even from David Hasselhoff days right through to now, you know, 
leading the the workforce and representing us so beautifully. So I'm so grateful to the work you do, Karen. Thank you. And it's the members that keep me going and the reward from people being happy and feeling well represented is, I think, the thing that keeps most of the Abner team going. Great. I'd like to thank you, Karen. It's been really interesting to really dig into the role of nurses within primary care. From the podcast perspective, we do sort of tend to focus very much within the business of primary care. And of course, nurses are just so integral to doing that really well. So it's been really gratifying to get that deep dive into APNA's perspective and what you see coming up in the space of, you know, movements and progression for nurses in primary care. So thank you for uh, coming to join us. I just want to say thank you. I love the honesty and insight yeah. into what happens. I think sometimes in this health landscape, we get policies and edicts and, and consultation papers and stuff. And, and Karen, thanks for just helping keep it real and, and some, providing some fantastic tips for us support. I, mean, I would speak with the practice manager Hannah, to support our fabulous nurses because I know it, it, for me, they are just so critical to what we do in terms of caring for our patients, but also setting our practice culture and the type of place it is that we work. And I'm really excited for what the future is going to hold. I think it's a pretty exciting time in this space with fingers crossed some of those reforms coming up. So thank you very much for for being part of our little podcast. My pleasure. And I I would say APNA does a really good conference, but we also do a really good party. So make sure that you're all there in July. Thanks for listening to the Medicubes podcast. Make sure you subscribe via your favourite podcast listening app so you don't miss an episode. Medicubes is brought to you by Cubico, MediCoach and Medical Business Services with technical support from the awesome crew at Talking Health Tech. This podcast presents information of a general nature and we recommend that you obtain professional advice for your individual circumstances always. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics on the show. Make sure you visit us via the Minicubes website, which you can access via the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with someone who might get some value from it so we can continue to share these important messages with more people. Speak to you next time.